This is a KTF Press podcast. I always think of my own story. What would it have been if people who mentored me first would have told me, hey, Millie, guess what? Why don't you get your green card first and then we'll disciple you? I wouldn't be here, you know, and stuff. So, but I'm just saying, you know, it could happen because I've heard in churches of that, you know, yeah. or even denominations that do not license or ordain people who are undocumented, but are getting all of their services in their churches, right? As deacons, lay leaders, everything. And they're just doing this with their big hearts, lowly hearts, right? To service to Jesus, but yet should be compensated for that. Welcome to Shake the Dust, leaving colonized faith for the kingdom of God. I'm Susie Lahoud here with Jonathan Walton and Sai Hoekstra. And I am here with a slight rasp in my voice because I went to a baseball game the other day and yelled at the players really loud. And that's a silly thing for a podcaster to do, but I did it and here we are. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we today are going to talk about the idea of acquiring privilege. Uh, and and how that kind of changes your your relationship with people around you and with God and with yourself. Um, it's it's that's a bit of an abstract topic, but I promise we will bring it right down to earth. We also have a guest with us, but before we get to her, uh, just really quickly, I want to remind everyone to head over to ktfpress.com slash free month and take a look and really consider becoming a supporter of this show and everything we do at KTF Press by looking at uh, that subscription. It's $7 a month or $70 a year. It gets you our, our weekly newsletter with recommendations on political education and discipleship from the three of us. You get two from each of the three of us every week, plus some other stuff. Um, you also get bonus episodes of this show. There are several hours of those at this point, and uh, they're really great. We hope that you go and check them out. And that supports just everything else we do, the book that's coming up soon, um, all of our other work, our articles, everything else. Um, thank you so much to those of you who are subscribed. If uh, you cannot do that. Please do consider just following us. Actually, everybody, go and follow us on social media at KTF Press on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, hit, leave a, a rating and review for us in your podcast player for this show if your podcast player allows for that sort of thing. Uh, and, and hit that follow or subscribe button in your podcast player as well while you're there. And now I will give you to Jonathan. Jonathan, tell us, who do we have back with us today? Yes, I'm so, so, so excited to introduce Millie Silencio, formerly a Kie, last time she was here. Um, she is a lot of wonderful things, an educator, spiritual advisor, mentor, and a dreamer. And her current professional experience includes being an executive pastor with Reconcile Brooklyn. She's also the founder of Hoping Greatly, where you can see her writing at hopinggreatly.com, where she uplifts others through her story of resilience as an undocumented immigrant. Education-wise, she has a degree from Nyack College and Hunter College, as well as being a licensed clergy through the ECC, that's Evangelical Covenant Church. Um, Mrs. Silencio has also served at <laughs> church plants and youth ministry since like 2005. And shout out to InterVarsity. She's an alumni of our campus ministry and still actively involved as a founder of the alumni mentor movement. She's worked in higher education at Hunter, Hunter College and City Seminary. 
As an extremely talented writer, she contributed to our anthology entitled Keeping the Faith, Reflections on Christianity and Politics in the Era of Trump and Beyond. And she's also an active contributor on My DocuLife and is on the board of directors for Women of Wonder. She is an accomplished woman. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Millie, for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend some time with us. No, thank you. Thank you guys for having me again. Yeah. And so as I said, we're talking about the just the idea of acquiring privilege um, that we did not have and how that changes our relationships with different groups of people, ourselves and God. And so we're going to just go around briefly and talk about our personal experiences with the idea of acquiring privilege. And we'll start with you, Millie. Yeah, sure. Um, thank you guys for having me. I feel so honored in just being here. And yeah, for me, you know, privilege hasn't been such a great word, you know, all the time at all. Um, you know, just knowing where I came from and my humble beginnings as, you know, just being an uh, immigrant daughter, a first generation, graduating my family. So we really have never had privilege. You know, we've always, you know, been a, a very low income and everything. So now, you know, in this transition that I'm in, so I, um, Recently got married in October. Thank you, thank <laughs> you, you know, to a wonderful, just big-hearted American um, and stuff. That he, I know he wouldn't like me to say that and stuff for <laughs> sure. Uh, let me just say, big-hearted Jersey boy and stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Josh, um, it's been awesome, you know, because when we met, you know, we spoke about our stories and our backgrounds, and he was honest with me from the beginning of telling me, you know, his you know, um, journey out of white supremacy and the cult. And for me, I had to think about that as well and take a step back and be like, wow, this is interesting. God is giving me someone who's been reconciled into loving and just having a heart for justice. So the interesting, I would say now season I'm in is since I'm marrying, you know, as uh, undocumented, as a dreamer, someone who is born you know, from America, is the, at times the assumptions that I already have privilege, right? Because I'm married a U.S. citizen, then automatically in, in some, I don't know what it is, some expectations of um, just people that, yeah, automatically I got married on October 2nd and voila, I am documented. Mm -hmm. That is so not true, yeah. you know, whatsoever. <laughs> that is not how it goes at all. Um, and and I think just clarifying that, you know, but I do see the assumptions of privilege because of being in that transition of the cusp of starting my process of adjustment of status, um, which I am in the end of this year. Um, but I do sense that of people asking those questions, you know, hey, will you still be part of the community? Will you not? Right. Of the undocumented community. And worrying about that, and and yeah, it's it's hard. It's been a moment of grief for me, um, and also a lot of um, just grateful for counseling to process uh, as well this moment. Even though I know and I'm aware that I, you know, definitely have a, what they call legally a bona fide marriage, which means a love marriage and stuff, you know. Mm. But it's still just even the notion of knowing uh, having the support and the really bad. Um, you know, just people's understandings of it. Um, I felt a lot of guilt and shame in this process. Um, mm. So yeah, so I can definitely talk about that. We, we will get into all of that more. As much as I want to get into it right now, I do want everyone to still go around and talk about <laughs> their, <laughs> their notions of acquiring privilege. Um, 
thank you so much for opening up to all that. All that is fascinating. And we will dive much more into uh, several different aspects of that. Hmm. But briefly for me, um, the, it's it's funny because, well, so, you know, first of all, I, I grew up, you know, a white straight guy with money in America. So there's a little bit of a question of what do you mean acquiring privilege? It seems like you had that the whole time. <laughs> but <laughs> the, there, there's, a, there's a conversation that always takes place within the disability community about um, curing, right? Uh, about like people who who can you know there's some medical treatment out there or something that could like basically remove your disability from you in certain cases right so it's not something that can happen to me at the moment it is potentially something that can happen to me in the future right there are there are uh, all kinds of technologies that people are working on to to help you know damaged retinas like mine you know work better you know that it's, it's a possibility but it's a thing that we think about all the time because it's so wrapped up in the notion of disability identity because so many people are, you know, come from the kind of the position that I am proud of my disability and my community and it's a deep part of my identity. And even if you offered me a cure, I wouldn't even take it. And and it's an insult to offer me a cure. You know, all those th- those those ideas are always floating around. Yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll get more into different aspects of that. But that is something that disabled people are always talking about because for a lot of people like if you're if you're deaf or hard of hearing and you can get a cochlear implant or you know for lots of people who can just take different medicines to mitigate the symptoms of of whatever their medical condition is um that's a real live question of like do do you want to acquire this privilege and like like millie was saying is there grief around losing something of yourself in the process of doing that Mm. um so yeah that's me you know, when there's a question of like acquiring something we didn't you normally have in the system that we have in the world, right? So you've got these subordinated classes and you've got dominant classes, right? And something that I've been thinking about a lot is like in places where I have been quote unquote subordinated or abnormal or different, like I've changed a lot, like multiple classes where I have like a quote unquote acquired things that, um, society offers to those who have higher education and like for me like i have an ivy league degree i have a graduate degree um and there are assumptions that come with that um i don't i don't rent i own a home now like that's an assumption the 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 assumption that we have access and or possession of resources knowledge and power like immediately because of where we live, the degrees that are, we don't hang them up there in like file cabinets somewhere, but you know, <laughs> I, you know, usually people hang their degrees on a wall. Like the assumptions that come from that, especially with people from my own family down in Virginia um, are stark, real, and sometimes very true, right? You know, the average income in my town in Virginia is $14,000. The average, the median income in Manhattan is eighty. And so that's just true, you mm. know? Um, and so the reality of of engaging with that, that like, you know, as far as I know, I'm the only person undergraduate from the 12 counties that make up the district where I'm from to have gone to an Ivy League school undergrad ever, you know? I usually get an email when someone applies to Columbia from where I'm from. I've got one email in the last 15 years. Um, mm. Just that that reality is something that I'm actively wrestling with because I don't know what it means to as um as Dominique Gilliard would put it like stewarding that privilege for a subversive witness. Mm. 
right? Yeah. Um, I think that's something I'm actively trying to figure out, especially with my own daughters who have no semblance of the subordinated classes that I come from. It's not part of their life at all. <laughs> so, yeah. What about you, Susie? Yeah, I feel like for me, um, uh, this conversation tends to revolve around the the acquisition of of wealth or of money, and and it starts really when I was young. I was born into a family that was middle class, maybe even lower middle class. I, I was a pastor's kid, one of five children, um, and my dad was in grad school and working at the time, so um, we had enough, but you know, not a lot. Um, of excess. And then we moved overseas to Uzbekistan when I was eight. And all of a sudden we were wealthy compared to the average person living there. And so the fact that I had more than literally two sets of clothes um, meant that I was wealthy. The fact that I didn't even think about buying a tube of toothpaste. My friends used to give each other Colgate toothpaste for birthdays. Hmm. Um, so all of a sudden um, I, I was wealthy in, in the eyes of the people around me. And, and relatively that was true. And it kind of bothered me. I was telling Sai yesterday, this one story of one day walking home from school, I was attending the, the local, you know, former Soviet public school and was walking home with two of my friends. And one of the girls didn't know me as well. And she was like, well, Susie, why did your family choose to move to Uzbekistan from America? Why would you do that? And my friend who did know me pretty well and knew my family, she was like, oh, well, because in America they were poor, but here they're rich. And I got so angry at my friend for saying that. And afterwards I pulled her aside and I was like, why would you say that? That's awful. And she's like, well, one, it's true that you like you are wealthy now. And two, she's like, I was covering for you because your parents are missionaries and that's illegal. So you should be thanking me. Um Hmm. But I think just that speaks to sort of my uncomfortability with with realities about um, my socioeconomic status. And that has continued to this day with, you know, I married a man who he is Lebanese um, and we both feel a calling to a certain kind of ministry. But he also is full time in, in the business world and has actually managed to earn quite a bit of money. And so I never expected that I would be married to someone who would have that ability and that status. And and for us as a married couple, a lot of what we wrestle with is how do we, as as Jonathan was just saying, how do we steward that privilege well? Um, and again, it's something that makes me very uncomfortable. And I think it's a huge responsibility rather than just ignoring it. It's It's something that we really feel like we need to call ourselves to a really high standard of being faithful with that and not judging that standard even by the way that we see people around us living that out. Um, because I think the status quo isn't always the most faithful bar for for what stewarding your privilege looks like. So Millie, let's dig into uh, a little bit uh, one of the things that you said, which was the notion of how much people misunderstand the process of acquiring through marriage, you know, a green card. And could you elaborate a little bit on, on you know, some of those misunderstandings, the, the anxiety of going through that process, kind of what it's been like for you? Yeah. So like I said, sometimes certain people think, oh, when you're getting married and you're undocumented, as soon as, you know, you say that I do, you sign your, your paperwork. They hand you a green card. That's it. It's like yeah. <laughs> at the altar. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, here they go at the <laughs> altar and you're automatically a citizen, you know, um, <laughs> So it's, it's not true, you know, and so, so let me just, mm. just, you know, definitely demystify that. Um, mm. 
usually every person and stuff, and, and I say this just in general, um, and I'll speak in I terms afterwards, um, we all have a process, you know, and all of us, according to how our entry point was um, in America, um, whether legally or not, um, we have to do certain forms and these forms all cost a certain amount as well. And also you have to do, guess what? Also a medical exam to see if you are fit to even become a person to be petitioned from a citizen. Yes, you need a medical exam mm -hmm. and it's required. You have to get vaccinated. I am pro-vaccination. So to me, that is not an issue. But there's some in the undocumented that are not. So they're mm. saying, how in the heck is this required for us? But yet others do not even wear a mask, you know, in their respective mm. states. Mm. So that's a whole other interesting story. But it is a lot of forms, um, plus this medical exam, which only has to be done by those um, doctors who are part of this kind of process and are basically registered to do this mm -hmm. and all of this it's it's total to a lump sum of three thousand dollars or so oh wow and and that sorry can i note that's if you don't hire a lawyer to help you yes this is if you don't hire a lawyer to help you so if you do hire a lawyer let's just say it's like ten thousand or twenty thousand or mm. so it's oh, yeah. depending on yeah. your case you know mm. it gets really really um hefty in that price so for me um, it was a big decision I had to take with my husband. And the reason is DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, it um, gives you a work permit, but then also basically um, shields you from being deported every two years. So guess what? My DACA is going to expire next year in June, which makes me also understand I need to renew at least eight months before and start the process or, you know, start my process of my husband petitioning me for adjustment of status, you know, me consulting with other mentors and us just prayerfully seeing that. And my husband was just honest with me and saying, babe, you've waited too long in the system. It's been 30 years. We should do adjustment of status, even though the difference is huge because my um, DACA, um, amount is like $500. And then the other one, like I said, is close to 3000 if you don't do it with a lawyer. So um, so that is one thing um, for sure to definitely share is there's a whole process of documentation you have to fill. Yeah. Some of these applications are overwhelming. They're mm -hmm. like 18 pages each or so. Um, so and you have to put a lot of different history and you have to, to put a lot of different proof of saying that you are who you say you are, that you guys are married, that you have even witnesses, especially if your marriage is less than two years and stuff, which is our case, you know? So, so yeah, so that's the whole endeavor we're, we're doing, making sure we have many things joint, which we do, of course, as a married couple, because um, we're not doing this because I paid my husband, right? So no, not at all. Like it, it is a love marriage, but even though it is a love marriage, it's true what I shared with you guys. I faced a lot of, um, you know, shame and guilt of even going through this process, mm -hmm. even though I know it was nothing I could have done, you know, um, differently to, um, to go to the next step. Um, and it's something that, yeah, it's the, the systemic, you know, just um, barriers that I still have in me. That's something I processed in therapy. 
Um, but yes, that's just something to tell you guys more information about the process of legalization. A lot of documents, it's hefty price. Um, you know, and mind you, that itself takes time. Um, some cases take, you know, one years. to two years, yeah. you know, others take like five to 10 years or so. So by the Lord's grace, I'm hoping things are speeding up immigration that it may take, you know, at least one to two years for us um, because mm-hmm. of my case. Um, but yeah. let's see. Let's see what happens. And just because I've I've been through this with my wife that, you know, you apply for First, you apply for a conditional green card. Then you have to file another application for an unconditional green card a couple years later, right? And then there's like, I mean, there's an interview involved where they ask you all kinds of questions to try and figure out if you're married. We, I mean, we submitted like the check that we paid the venue for our wedding because you mm. just want to submit like anything you possibly can to show to them this is like a real actual marriage. I mean, the the, the application that we had was like a binder. It was enormous. <laughs> Mm. Wow. So yeah, I mean that that's I, I appreciate you elaborating on on that and talking about some of the feelings around it because it, it is a lot for sure. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So so Millie, you you were sharing about some of the kind of mixed emotions around this and feelings of even sometimes grief or guilt or um and so I was wondering how do you talk to your immigrant friends and family and particularly to your undocumented community about this change? And what is that communication like for you? Yeah. I've been very intentional after, you know, getting married and just um, still maintaining that friendships that I do have with people who are, um, you know, undocumented. And I've been very open and just letting them know, you know, you guys know, I don't have a green card right now. Thank God, you know, because that's the word the community, I can just be honest, right? Um, and, and they understand that. Um, and I have had friends ask me, hey, you know, as you're in the process, will you forget about us? And there I reassure. I'm like, no, absolutely not. I've been in, this is part of my story and it will continue to be part of my story. And the best way I can say is I have come across um, a great like Latina mentor and friend that was formerly undocumented and hearing her witness, and even when she was, um, before she spoke at a certain event, she did say in her bio, formally undocumented, that's something I continually will always put in mind as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's something I've shared with friends, you know, who have had that question. What does this mean? Will we lose you? And I'm like, absolutely not. You know, this, I'm still going to be part of the community, but even stronger, you know, like, you know, talking about privilege, this is uh, for me will be my good steward of privilege when I do come to the next round, right? Which is hopefully in a year or so, um, you know, being documented, you know, but just helping the community, but also being that bridge between both of those who are, because it's a lot, you know, to process um, at times in, in knowing you need this, and you know this is good for you, but then you know you're so attached to the community, you don't want to leave in certain ways, right? But mm-hmm. I also am understanding that just the same way I transitioned my season from being single seven years to now being you know married, um, it's the same way of just allowing that grief of knowing that yes, I'm not going to be able to speak on certain contexts, right? Because I'm not completely part of that context anymore, but I still can speak because of just the 
three decades I've been part of this system, you know, so any day, any time, I will always be a supporter for undocumented communities. Um, just because I'm in a transition does not mean I'm exempt from anything in that way. Um, I will completely be a fierce ally and help those allies even understand better, you know, what it looks like to support us. Um, so that's conversations I've had with very dear friends who are undocumented and they felt so relieved in knowing that I will still be part of the community. I will still attach that to my bio um, because they've seen it. And I know because I've seen it myself of people who just forget. It's as if I understand sometimes, um, but also other times I agree to disagree on their interpretations mm -hmm. of going forward in their lifestyle and just forgetting to give back to the community, you know, mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's something I've really... Um, you know, did grieve about, but then also understood um, um, it's still part of me. It's not going to leave me anyways. Um, it's just I'm a different perspective and a different side, but it also will be stronger, my voice and my my power in how I can interpret, like I said, for both sides of um, the allyship, but then also the community. Um, and, and I think I'll be a fierce bridge in that way as well. Mm, I love that analogy of just being a bridge and also if I could just emphasize what you said about not forgetting because I feel like that's that's the tension a lot of times for me with um you know I shared a little bit about my story but even just changing locations from places like Uzbekistan and coming back to the U.S. or going back and forth between Lebanon and the U.S. and Lebanon's a country right now where people don't always have running water and electricity so just this idea of when you've been places and seen people's struggles there, there is this responsibility, I think, to carry that knowledge mm -hmm. with you and to not forget, to remember. And I just love how we see that in the Bible with, you know, I feel like in some ways you could look at the story of the Exodus as the people of Israel journey, journeying out of being enslaved people and acquiring the privilege of citizenship in a new land. And and yet God tells them throughout that journey to remember, remember where they came from. And then when they get to the new land to care for the sojourner and the stranger among them because they were once sojourners and strangers. And so I just love the, those, those two themes that you hit on of just choosing to not forget, choosing to actively remember and, and to stay connected to that community and serve as a bridge between those two realities of life. I think that's so important. I think the, the, I totally agree with all that. And I, I think the um, the grief thing is the thing that hits me, right? Like the notion mm. of you you lose something that a lot of the world looks at as like a stain, you know? A lot of the world looks at it as like something that you, you should not be proud of in any way, like an undocumented status, but losing it for you because you've you've made it part of who you've identified with it, like to a, to a, a, an enormous and like, highly risk-taking degree in your case mm -hmm. it, it just like becomes such a part of who you are and i think that's where i connect a little bit on the on the, the disability front right because there's just like a ton of fraught feelings around acquiring privilege through like when you're talking about you know disabled people it's like a a, a, a literal change to your body you know what i mean <laughs> is is what's like creating the the privilege in those cases and it's just it's so um it is it's not just it's like not just a part of who you are sort of in your day-to-day -day life or or like you know mentally what you've identified with it's a part of your literal body is changing 
and um that causes people a ton of grief a ton of uh, you know emotions and and i i think and so i i don't i don't exactly know where i'm going with this i'm just saying i identify with that part of what you said really <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think i'm in your boat where like this this inspired a lot more thoughts than i thought like i'm on paper there's like reading it but then like as we're having the conversation um something that is interesting to me is two things one like the difference between rights versus privileges Hmm. And like, I'm like, oh, are, are rights things we can acquire when we can't get the privilege, right? Like I can't leave being black behind. There's no physical change that like Sai talks about. There's no healing that's going to happen, mm-hmm. right? So, or or be like with the LGBT, LGBTQIA plus community, it's like that's not something that they're necessarily want to change or going to change, right? Like, um, so there's a right. Whereas like, when you're embodying the change, like you as a physical person are like, have changed statuses, right? Um, and that that's something to me that that's pretty like, compelling to think about, um, particularly when we think about the second part, these are communal identities. These aren't individual ones. Yeah. And so the idea that like, to my mom, I am different now because I have an education. And her needing that reassurance that I won't forget, you know, or when I look at Maya and Maya will never know what it's like not to expect the fridge to be full or the bills to be paid or like she breaks down if we get the wrong sushi roll, right? Like that's, <laughs> I'm like. I mean, I would break down if I got the wrong sushi Yeah, It roll, takes everything <laughs> in me not to be like. Do you know where you come from? But she doesn't. Yeah. The first time she picked a um, she picked a squash out of the field in Broadnecks, where I'm from, and like she was like she didn't want to get her hands dirty, and I'm just like like this is like this is this is you you know what I mean? But like there's this there's a separation now of like she's not in the same class as I was, but I'm in this class. How do I explain to her where she came from? There's a communal aspect we don't have the same accent we don't have the same we we don't have the same educational trajectory we don't and it's 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 a very uh as you're talking it's a very like i changed but we are the same mm-hmm. like i i am this but but we i am still like you so there's this there's this uh talking across a social wall that feels significant. And I'll, I'll, this is the last thing I'll say because I think they illustrate this is that like I've become really married to shower heads that are like really nice. <laughs> and I notice like hot water. I've started to notice things when I go into other people's houses because of the, cl- the class change. Because of how our how, like we had to redo our bath. Our bathroom is new. I didn't grow up with new anything in a house you know like we make repairs when things break there's things that just just like uh things that are unacceptable in our household now that have been acceptable my entire life Mm. that i'm still like kind of wrestling through so Mm. so yeah anyway that was me rambling and i know i have a question on here but Susie's gonna say something go ahead oh i was gonna say can i just ride this train a little bit farther and just and i will have a question at the end of it um or i might just be completely derailing the conversation but just if we could touch on the generational aspect too, because I think, yeah, Jonathan, this is something I think about too as a parent is 
some of the things that I experienced. So again, growing up in Uzbekistan, there were some hard things about living there and some hard things that my family went through. And so I appreciate when things aren't hard so much more. Um, and I appreciate what I have now. So, like I appreciate physical safety more. I appreciate, you know, getting to go to the park and buy a balloon. Like I appreciate things like that that I couldn't have or do. And I love giving those things to my kids and providing those kings things to my kids. But then I think, how do I also pass on the lessons that I learned through what I experienced growing up? And, and the resilience and all of those things because I'm actually grateful that there were aspects of my childhood that weren't easy. And, mm-hmm. and I think that they shaped me and formed me in important ways. Those experiences did. And so how do I also pass that on to my kids? Because they don't have the context and the background for what we're experiencing now that, that I do. And yeah. so I guess to throw this out as a question for you, Millie, like how do you think about this change of status that you're now in, it's in process for you. Like you said, you're not there yet. Um, this is still in process, but now you're married and you're going to, I don't know if you guys are planning to have kids or not, but do, is that something that you think about? And then also, Jonathan, if you want to, it looks like you have more. Yeah, I'll, I'll contextualize a little closer, right? Like as you preach, right? Mm. As you shepherd other people, like is how you talk about your experience changing? Is how you talk about God changing, and if so, how? Mm-hmm. To answer, I, I'll try my best to answer both in one, um, <laughs> for sure. So to definitely answer you, Susie, um, yes, me and Josh have spoken about kids. We want to have them, not yet. Um, and the reason is because of also um, socioeconomic status for both of us. You know, he is an entrepreneur. He's a bike mechanic. I'm a church planting pastor where our church has severely been hit because of the pandemic and stuff. Um, you know, so yeah, so that we, that's one thing there. Um, but when it comes to kids, we have spoken about that. What would we like to impart to them? Mm-hmm. And we've been very, um, both of us have the same heart of them growing in a bilingual home, you know, and growing up, you know, to definitely have, cause they're going to have our last name, which by the way, my husband took my last names. That's a whole other side story for you and stuff because that's how much he wanted to just for us to continue having that mm-hmm. in our story. Um, Jonathan did that too. So, yes. yeah, mm-hmm. nice, nice. Yes, yeah, and stuff. Man. So, um, we had that conversation. You know, we want to, even from us thinking in time when we have kids, even being intentional for them to even have a Spanish first name. And then maybe an English um, middle name um, because of their last name being so Latino, right? Silencio is really Latino. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in, in also in regards to what you said, Jonathan, hilariously enough, I just like gave a message a few weeks ago, which in my mind, because I had to do as well as a church planter, you have many hats. I also had to make sure everything in the church was okay. Our church is going still fine to have been with like, our lights went off, you know, so it was just so many different things and areas <laughs> that happened and, and just us making church, church, if that makes sense. Um, and Corey was off um, for that Sunday. So I was on, um, I struggled in making the message, which is a whole other side story in itself. But when I did, and we were speaking about second Peter, what I gravitate towards, and that's something I'm seeing is, is part of me all the time is, 
I gravitated from the very beginning when Paul, not Paul, Peter started saying and talking about to the exiles of X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And for me, and from there, it just set the tone for me because I'm like, I know what exiles are. It's migrants. Mm -hmm. It's like us in our stories or immigrant stories. And Mm -hmm. it just helped me understand and love even more. Not to say I don't and stuff, but I've been appreciating a lot more my story, my migrant story with my mom and honoring Mm -hmm. her more and knowing that, you know, the story that I'm saying right now actually has been a story that's been told to me in parts because of her traumatized state, you know, um, these past Mm -hmm. years. Um, So I think for me, when I look in scripture, I think about that as well. Whenever I see migrants or exiles or, um, foreigners you know i understand that in a so other different level um that it makes me just have that perspective and lens in how i i preach or how i teach as well and also making sure that um those who are from different ethnicities and different races in our congregation know the beauty of that you know of being a mosaic for god being part of the body of christ in that way but not being uniformity, you know, and stuff. So that's how also I interpret it because I'm just, I'm just tired of just the systems um, that may also in scripture, you know, cause that's one of the reasons why I also had to have a reconciliation moment um, with scripture and so much white supremacy surrounding, you know, certain commentaries and other theologians interpretations of, you know, books of the Bible. So, so yeah, like I said, that's a whole other side story in itself, but um, it's been great to still see myself whenever I meditate on scripture, um, still me having my story in it. Um, and and also as a woman, you know, and stuff. And I was very intentional in that message in talking about the comparison of the inheritance of Christ to then the times that we as women didn't even have access to inheritance, like the daughters of, um, the name fades me, in, but it's in um, the book of um, Numbers and stuff, which talks about um, these daughters of Selephahad, you know, who came to, to Moses, you know, because they were women um, and there was no male heir. What Moses did, went to Jesus, right? Went to God and God was like, yeah, give it to them. You know, so I'm just saying, so things like this that also I hone into my womanhood as I interpret scripture and see like, wow, it's true. Like we, we've really been blessed in where we are. I've really been blessed in where I am and I never want to take that for granted. So I guess building off of that, how how your experiences shape the way that you read the Bible and how you preach and, and disciple there's an idea that sort of floats around churches saying that people with less privilege know God more closely or better understand Jesus's teachings, specifically because it takes trial or hardship or desperation to sort of break you if you want to truly be close to him. And and so we wanted to kind of talk with you about that framing because um, I think there's a lot in there and and some of it is really good and true and helpful and some of it may be needs to be teased out and maybe critiqued even. So yeah, if we could just kind of pick your brain on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. I think for me, when I um, was also looking at this um, question as we were talking about it via email, um, I felt a lot of like, I would say resistance with it, but Mm -hmm. then also understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, 
resistance, I think, because I've I've known what it is to be in churches which praise exactly that, you know, the lowly in spirit, um, the poverty, um, and yet teach the other spectrum of Jesus as well, right? Um, of like prosperity and gospel and things like that, but mm-hmm. yet do not help practically those who are at the margins Mm -hmm. um even though they themselves are part of their community and to me i have an issue with that you know um for me i think it's a balance you know if we believe in a god of yes he is there for those who um what lowly in spirit right um then we should also believe that he is there for the the rules of nations too right and he is there for for all um, so I think for me, I wrestle with that because of just knowing people, preaching and teaching, especially the lowly in spirit in the context of it being so, I would say, caged in to be, um, for you to continue in that poverty um, and for that to be a benefit for society, but yet not helping them in their spiritual formation or growth beyond um, just even the systems of this world. And for me, right, in my concept, mm-hmm. I could say even beyond your undocumented status, because um, I do sense that um, even in, at least in my context, um, I have been in certain like churches where even though they're a part of the community, they've never even spoken about, you know, the immigration, you know, issue or, um, or even highlighted, hey, you are, God sees you, God hears you, he loves you. And your undocumented status does not breach you from access to Jesus. I have never heard that in a Latino Pentecostal church, churches that I've been in. I wish I would have heard that because I think I would have been in a different journey now. Um, But yet, you know, like I said, for some reason, and I think this is, again, the, I would say the, the wave, the, you know, the, the spirit, unfortunately, of of colonization and also white supremacy in how even our own communities, immigrant communities, have been indoctrinated to say certain scriptures in this way of maintaining the lowly to be even more low um, and for them not to go against what's already in place in society. Um, and to me, I'm against that because then we also even see that in church planting. Um, where certain curriculums or even leadership development, it goes to the context of, yeah, let me, for, for where I've heard it, and I've went completely against it as well, of um, an immigrant, you know, needing first legal services to then from there needing leadership development, as if Jesus said, hey, guess what, immigrant, get your green card first, and then, you know, you can be a disciple of mine. That is not Jesus, you know, and stuff. So there's things like this to me that, um, I I struggle with that context because I know God is true. He is, I've seen it in my family. Like there's times we didn't even have enough for rent. And by God's grace, we won one of those monopoly pieces. We submitted it in and it arrived, that check, literally the time we needed rent. So mm-hmm. like McDonald's paid my rent. Monopoly, yeah. <laughs> yes, oh my McDonald's paid my rent one month and stuff. Um <laughs> You know, and, st- and for us, you know, and just to, s- to say that context, you know, um, I understand that. And I think that's great. 
but I also think it's it's great to to help others continue grow in who God has created them to be and just letting them grow because I feel like I didn't see that. I wish there was better mentorship in that way for spiritual gifts, um, you know, in all its contexts of the ministries, right? Whether it be not only pastor, but teacher, you know, prophetic, apostle, all of them to be grown um, instead of it just being certain people only um, in some sort of hierarchy in church, you know. But anyways, I don't want to get into a tangent, but that's those are my thoughts, you know, and um, and kind of just feelings around that, you know, of the systems that may, but then also seeing it even in church context, you know, of just unfortunately um, people not noticing that, saying that too much um, is actually not helpful at all um, mm-hmm. to to help those who are in the struggle for sure. It alleviates, but it also is helpful to give other resources to continue um, whatever it is that they're needing for. Um, and yeah. I always think of my own story. What would it have been if people who mentored me first would have told me, hey, Millie, guess what? Won't you get your green card first? And then we'll disciple you. I wouldn't be here, you know, it's just so, but I'm just saying, you know, it could happen because I've heard in churches of that, you know, yeah. or even denominations that do not license or ordain people who are undocumented, but are yet getting all of their services in their churches, right? As deacons, lay leaders, everything. And mm-hmm. they're just doing this with their big hearts, lowly hearts, right? To service to Jesus, but yet mm-hmm. should be compensated for that. So that is my issue with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it almost becomes justifying of the of the poverty, the material lack, right? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. That's a sad but very true point, I think. Susie, you had a, a number of thoughts on this, I think, too, right? Well, I guess just one thing that I've been kind of thinking about is uh, – so we recently celebrated Easter and uh, – and also I shared in one of our, our weekly newsletters a great talk that um, Mako Nagasawa gave on re- restorative versus retributive justice um, and and arguing that God's form of justice is restorative, not retributive. So it gets into atonement theory and all of that. And the way that this all relates for me right now, maybe to atonement theory and my understanding of, of what Christ's sacrifice on the cross means is just that um, I, I believe in a God who suffers with us and that moment of Christ suffering on the cross, seeing that as a moment of solidarity with us in our suffering, I think it enlightens this for me because it's showing that yes, God is with us in those moments of hardship and tribulation. Um, but it's not retributive. It's not God actively, you know, Sai, you put it when we were talking about this the other day, you, you put it in terms of it can almost create an abusive view of God mm-hmm. that like God has to crush you and break you yes. and make you experience hardship in order for you to be sanctified and purified and all that. Keep you close to him with material lack, which is like literally a, a tactic of abusive men. Yes, 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 and has been critiqued in different even justice movements yes. um, and and can feed into, like you were saying, Millie, an almost glorification of lack by the people who have everything that they need and have massive amounts of privilege. And so, yeah, I think I'm, again, for me, I've been seeing this, trying to see this sort of through the lens of the cross and how I view the cross and that, again, it's God entering into our suffering with us. And I firmly believe in that. And I, I, 
I'm not questioning that at all, but then do want to critique the unhealthiness of thinking that God has to make you suffer in order for you to be close to him. Um, And it's complicated because those two things are somehow seem like they should be linked together, but I think there's some unhealthiness that we need to, as we always talk about on this show, sort of disentangle. So one thing that really stands out to me is that from what you're saying, Susie, is a message I actually got to share at Reconcile, hmm. where Millie's we church. talked about like a Reconcile Church where uh, Millie is a pastor and like the the difference between a colonial subject versus a congregant. Mm-hmm. And like you have to see God as an overseer in the context of colonization. Yeah. And so the the entanglement, it has to be like teaching for control. It can't be teaching for empowerment. Mm-hmm. It can't be teaching for agency. It can't. It has to be teaching and then contextualized for control. Mm-hmm. And you know, the twisting of passages to say like, blessed are the poor. And so this joining of like, well, if I'm suffering, then I am exalted. And that means if you're a slave and you stay a slave, you're somehow closer to God. So it's okay for you to be a slave forever. Yeah, because that, right? yeah. And so they get joined together. Whereas like, it, but the flip side isn't true. Whereas like, we don't then have the discipleship, as Millie was talking about, of like, if you are rich, give your money away. There's no pursuit of downward movement. Mm. Yeah. Even though Jesus talks about that, like yeah. the first will be last, the last will be first. Like we will, but we we don't, we don't push that. We But we absolutely grab Philemon and say, this is how it should work out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's it's really difficult to entang- to disentangle them because they're the foundation of our society. I think the 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 kernel the, the reason this is like slightly uncomfortable is there's a kernel of truth in what we're talking about, which mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Emmanuel, right? Which is like God promises to be with people in their suffering. Yes, and yeah. so they do like as a matter of fact meet God in suffering because God has promised to be with you in suffering. Right? That is a thing that happens. But that is not some like you can use that truth to exploit people for in, for control in all the ways that you just talked about, right? I I just wanted right. to like put that out there. Like God promises to be with people who are poor, who are suffering, who are mourning, who are everything yes. else, you know. But yes. that's yeah, but He doesn't leave us there, right? That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Like in right. eternity, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, being being with you is not the same as holding you down. You know what I mean? Like yep. I, he's there. He's not. Yeah. You're, the ultimate goal is to lift you up. Yeah. And as you were sharing, Jonathan, I think where it's it's starting to kind of coalesce for me, because again, this is something I'm sort of actively trying to um, decolonize in my own thinking and reading of scripture and understanding of who God is. And just because God is with you in your bondage doesn't mean he doesn't fight with you for your liberation and lead you out into liberation. And I feel like we've been preaching a gospel that is just God is with you in your bondage so you can be content in your bondage. Mm. And it actually, Mm. rather than leading to liberation, it becomes a barrier to liberation. Mm. I really love this conversation because it's something I've been thinking about a lot and just wrestling with. Like I said, you know, honestly speaking, I was, I wrestle at times with reading scripture because of all these other different systems that I know go with it. Yeah. Um, but I think mm. as you guys are are like just having this wonderful conversation, what I'm also like remind I'm reminded of is that of God's like sovereignty and God is God and we are not, you know. And the reason I say this too is um also the other extreme, right? Of um people who have God and who 
um, maybe in okay socioeconomic status, but yet let's do, they do everything, right? They go ahead, go to a missionary trip, take that picture, right? Instead of go to, you know, a Black Lives Matters protest, right? And then they've been, you know, just to put it, and I can do this, right? Because I've been single for, I was single for seven years and stuff. and been single like seven years and are asking God and doing all of these different causes, you know, this is where I'm saying like God is God and we are not because I also think that other extreme of treating God kind of like a Santa Claus, you know, or a genie in the bottle is not it either, you know, and stuff like that. Um, Cause I've heard it, you know, and where right. um, yeah, people struggle, point. right. Of just those, these moments of, you know, of wanting to have certain life shifts and seasons, um, but it doesn't happen the way they want it. Right. And let's be honest, all of us with our life seasons, we know many of the things that we wanted did not happen when we wanted it. Mm -hmm. But when God knew this is, was the time for all yeah. of us to be, you know, at this time, place and moment, you know, and, and I think about that and I'm like, thank you, God, you've saved me in so many moments that I thought I thought this was it, you know? Um, and I think that's the beautifulness of the need for God, but in a, in a, like, God, I need you to hold me. I need you to be with me. You know, like you were saying, right, um, God is a God who is with the suffering, but it also is um, a wonderful way of knowing he is with us, too, in that liberation. I think it's in that experience, too, mm -hmm. of knowing that, you know, he even liberates us from ourselves in our context of, mm -hmm. um, you know, thinking we need something for certain time frames, right? Um, yeah. But then also he... He's just a, a loving father, right? And stuff that teaches us, um, yeah, you know, you need to go out from this extremity to another, right? Or sits with us and cries with us and mourns, right? And griefs when we need those moments. Um, mm -hmm. And I think about that, you know, as even Corey gave a message a few like months ago, and he talks about how God loves us so much that even correcting us, you know, hurts him, you know, and he made an example of him with his with his son, you know, at times his son likes doing, you know, like going ahead, going to like an outlet or something. He's like, Jael, don't do that and stuff. And, and of course, you know, he does it and stuff, but it doesn't mean that Corey loves his son any less. The same thing with God, right? It doesn't mean that God loves us any less when at times, you know, we um, are doing something and God's like, no, that's not really the way, you know, and stuff. So you're going to get electrocuted. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and stuff. We, and, and I think that's it too. Right. I think that's part of the process of um, God healing our mindsets. Right. And healing the systems that may, um, that have been passed down and of God, just detoxing that and just for us to be with him. And, and I think it's a communal experience, too, because um, look at us having this conversation and us in all different, you know, um, point of views and perspectives of this word privilege. Right. Um, and I think that's beautiful because you we can't do this alone. We need God's help, but we need each other. And I think that's something that um, we we need to continue, um, even though, yes, we're in a complete pandemic still. But we still need to continue having both relationships together because mm -hmm. um, if not, we're going to get lost. And I think for me, that is my greatest fear in this time and stuff. It's just us getting lost in too much of our headspace individualistic, but then also mm -hmm. negating the communal aspect of faith as yeah. well. I think I unfortunately need to cut us off. 
<laughs> I don't I don't want to, but we've gone for quite some time. <laughs> I I really appreciate Millie you you being with us in in this capacity as a guest who's been here before and we just know you too well at this point, so we're not as nervous about talking and then you don't talk as much. Anyways, what I'm trying to say is you're a part of our family and uh that's why we talked so much this episode. <laughs> Oh, thank you guys. No, I love it. Yeah. And, and yeah, for me, I'm like, oh, shoot, I feel like I had a whole pastoral moment right now. I need to, I need to pray. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. I was like, oh, wait, why, why did I go here? I don't even know. But here we are. Oh, no, yeah. we brought you on for the pastoral moments. That's I amazing. Yeah. No, I was so grateful for that. that yeah. Was so right. Good. Agreed. Yeah. Right. Um, why have a pastor on your show if you don't want pastoral moments? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> I uh, know. <laughs> So, so I mean, we know people can find your your writing and everything at hopinggreatly.com. They can find you on Instagram at hopinggreatly. Where else Where else do you want people to follow you? Or, or is there anything else you want people to check out? Ask people to support you. Yes, please. If you want to support my work, please send me a DM and hope, you know, my IG and hoping greatly. Or even send me an email at hopinggreatly at, you know, at gmail.com and stuff and be like, hey, how can I support you? Um, definitely, I am going to start a campaign actually for my missions trip in October in, in Berlin, which I'm super excited for because I'll be getting to meet, you know, a long family friend of size, yeah. by the way, yeah. um, Pastor Scott Corbin there. That's wow. a whole other wonderful story. Um, so, so yes, please, you know, if you want to unite um, with the mission for me to continue um, in just spreading my story, but also hope to undocumented communities support me and my work for sure. It, it is absolutely everyone go do that. It is one of the most random things of my entire life that my high school pastor and you like found each other on the internet internet. You're now going to stay with him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> such a small world. Yeah, for yes. real. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much for being here with us, Millie. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Just as a reminder before we finish up, uh, go to ktfpress.com slash free month to get a free month of the subscription, uh, get our newsletter, get our bonus episodes of this podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at KTF Press. Please do rate and review and subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player. All those things are very helpful to us. Our theme music, as always, is Citizens by John Guerra, our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam and we will see you all next time. And as a writer, she contributed in our anthology. Uh, oh man, I forgot the title of our anthology. <laughs> 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 Jonathan. I think we have our blooper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jonathan good. forgets the name of our book. <laughs>